So many of you will know that we took Matthew down to university in Stellenbosch. This was part of our holiday. And um, when some friends of ours, old friends of ours who live in Stellenbosch, heard that we were going down there, they said, oh, you must come and stay with us. Um, then when they heard that we were coming by, by plane, we were flying from, from Joburg to Cape Town, they said, oh, you're going to have um, trouble getting all the stuff for Matthew's room. You know, like the duvets and the bedding and the pillows and kettle, that sort of stuff. So they said, but don't worry about it, um, because we'll pop into the shops and buy that stuff in advance, because apparently what happens when all the first years and their parents descend on Stellenbosch, then all the stores just are crazy and they run out of stock and everything. So we were chuffed. I mean, in my books, nobody has any greater love for anybody else than by going shopping for them. I don't know whether you can relate to that. If someone will go shopping for me, then I'm just chuffed. But what, <laughs> what was even more amazing about these folk was once we arrived and I said, well, how can I organize to pay you for this stuff? They said, oh, no, don't worry about that. We've decided to pay for it as a gift. And so we were just so warmed in our heart. And the one word which, which jumped into my mind, and it's not a word that we use very often, but it's the word magnanimous. And that word magnanimous comes uh, from two Latin words, magnus meaning great, and animus meaning soul. And these folk were just big-hearted. They were big-souled. And the reason why I mention that this morning is because in reading Nehemiah, I've realized that if we want to work towards a God-given, God-ordained vision, then we need to be magnanimous people. We need to be people with big hearts, just as Nehemiah was. And in fact, if we want to pursue that vision, there's another two qualities that, are, that we're going to need, and I'm going to talk about those today as well. But let's start with magnanimity. Um, just to set the scene, things were incredibly tough for the Israelites at this particular time in their history. We read in Nehemiah, and I know Craig and Sean and others have mentioned this already, that there were food shortages, there were crippling taxes being demanded by Artaxerxes. He didn't have tax in the middle of his name for nothing. Um, and then there was just this general state of poverty, and some people were even having to sell their children into slavery in order to pay off their debts. Incredibly tough circumstances. And yet, Nehemiah's predecessors, the governors who came before him, they weren't concerned about the plight of ordinary people. This is what Nehemiah tells us. He says, the former governors placed a heavy burden on the people, and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lauded it over the people. These leaders couldn't have cared less. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But Nehemiah was different. Nehemiah was concerned about the plight of ordinary people. He had a right to all these perks as a governor, but he didn't take those rights because he didn't want to put an extra burden on the people. Instead, he says, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. And folks, this is astounding. Firstly, because Nehemiah was fully committed to the work. He was devoting all his resources and time to the building of the walls. But secondly, and this is the astounding part, because in the process of driving this project, of pursuing this vision, he didn't lose sight of people. 
He didn't lose sight of the needs of the people that were helping him to fulfill this vision, and he didn't lose sight of the poor. Now, many of us don't have an overwhelming vision that Nehemiah had. Many of us don't have as many problems as Nehemiah had. But we often overlook the needs of poor people. We often overlook the needs of those people who don't have a voice. In a sense, we can't hear them because they don't have the power and the influence to speak. And so, it's easy for us to overlook them. And this is an important lesson that we need to learn in life, that, we, that God values the poor, and we need to value them as well. And also, that when we are moving towards our vision, we mustn't overlook people. We mustn't undervalue people. But in order to do this, we need to have a very powerful motivator. And what was that motivator? Just have a look at verse 15. Read it there. Tells us what the motivator was there for Nehemiah. He says, I did it out of reverence for God. What does it mean to revere somebody? Well, we could use the word respect in the same place as revere. If I, if I respect God, I'm showing him reverence. So reverence is the kind of respect that we would show God. Now, why would that motivate him to value the poor? Why would that motivate him just to value people? Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, my dad used to allow me to use his tools. But he valued his tools very highly. And he always used to say to me, Ian, make sure that you use the right tool for the right job. Because if you don't do that, you'll damage the tool. And so if I was to take a, a, a screwdriver and try and use it as a chisel, it wouldn't be about damaging the screwdriver. It would be about dishonoring my dad and not respecting my dad because my dad respected his tools. He valued his tools. And so in the same way, God values the poor. God values people. He, he values them so much that he sent Jesus to come and die on the cross for them. So when we don't value people, and when we don't pay attention to the plight of the poor, then we're showing disrespect to God. And that is a very powerful motivator. And I'll put it out there this morning so that it can start to motivate us as well. I don't know about you, but I was listening to Sean's uh, sermon on this, which he preached, I think, two weeks ago. Was it Craig? Um, and I made the mistake of listening to it at three in the morning. I was, I was battling to fall asleep. So normally what I do is I start listening to a sermon and I find sermons put me to sleep in about five minutes. <laughs> but by the end of 25 minutes of listening to Sean Mullins, I was, I was quaking in my bed just thinking, my word, we've just got so much, I've got so much further to go when it comes to hardening myself and, and living in a place where I just don't actually hear what it's like to be poor. I don't hear what it's like to live in a tough circumstance. And so because I don't hear about it and I don't see it, um, it's not in my face, I just pretend that it's not there. And so I found that very challenging. But Nehemiah wasn't like that. In fact, there was even more to him, to this godly man. Yes, he'd refused cash to cash in on his rightful due as the governor, but he could have used this as an excuse to limit the number of people that he entertained at his table. But instead, he had 150 Jews and officials eating at his table on a daily basis. I mean, I just can't imagine that. Um, I don't think there's probably a lot more than 150 people sitting in here this morning. And that didn't include all of those who were coming to, to meet with him and talk with him from the surrounding nations, probably ambassadors and emissaries. 
And he could have chosen to cater very stingily. Because, look, I'm not, I'm not taking stuff from the people, so look, it's going to be a bit sparse. Uh-uh. Each day, magnanimity, bigness of heart and spirit. One ox, six choice sheep and some poultry were prepared for me. And every ten days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. What do we learn from this? I think the best way that we can measure our commitment to a vision is to look at whether we are financially committed to that vision or not. Because isn't it that what we spend our money on shows us what we value? If you want to see what you value, you just need to go through those little slips that come from a swipe machine. It'll show you what you value, where you're spending your money. And so we need to, to commit financially as well as in other ways to, to things, and that's why we need to be magnanimous. Money contends for top position in our hearts with God. And that's because money can provide us we think in our minds, and to a certain extent it's true, it can provide us with the same things that God can. It can provide for our needs, it can give us security, it can give us safety, um, it can make life comfortable. And so we're inclined to worship money more than we're inclined to worship God. Charles Wesley came up with a quote, and I think it's brilliant. He said, a man's wallet is always the last thing to be converted. And I find... I find in my own life that conversion of my wallet is not an event. It's a process. Every day, I've got to make sure that my wallet is converted to to God's ways. Uh, It's hard. Um, But we need, we do so need to do it. We need to put our money where our mouth is. And as time goes on, as, as God starts to clarify for us as a body what our vision is as a church, we're all going to be need, need him to, to put our money where our mouth is. Do we believe in this vision? If we do, then we're going to need to commitment to it in a magnanimous way. And as I reflected on Nehemiah's magnanimity, I realized that it was underpinned by two things. The first we've already spoken about, that reverence for God. And the second was courage to commit. If we don't have the courage to commit to God-given visions, then the work that God has for us will not be completed in our lifetime. And then our lives are going to be at best trifling affairs that do very little to honor God and to bless people. And we don't want that to be the case. We need to be bold, but but why do we need to be bold? Well, you'll always need to break through the barrier of risk to do things that honor God and bless others. Anything in this life that is going to honor God and bless others is going to take an element of risk. And part of the reason for that is that when we serve God, He takes us out of a place of self-dependence into a place of dependence on God. If God doesn't come through for us, it's going to fall flat. And it's risky. That's why we need to take risks. Here's another thing we learned from Nehemiah. People follow courage and they don't follow titles. Did you see that? He wasn't trying to lead the people by saying, I'm the governor, follow me. He was wholeheartedly devoted himself, and that was the reason why people followed him. We can't go through at least six months without watching a Braveheart video, so here we go. Yes! Put a volume in there, folks. So, really, inasmuch as you and your captains 
hail from the region, long known to support the value of plan. May we invite you to continue your support and uphold our rightful claim. Jump the field! has an amazing position. Every one of us, if we've submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ and been born again, we are sons and daughters of the King. We are co-heirs with Christ. But we haven't been given that position for ourselves. We've been given that position so that we can lead other people to freedom, lead them to Christ. And we're not going to do that unless we're courageous people. If we spend our lives focused on what God can do for us, and how he can make our lives comfortable, then we're going to go fall so far short of what God wants us to do. And pursuing a God-given vision is like skydiving. You just got to take the risk. Got to be bold enough to jump out of the airplane. You can't ask somebody, "Are you skydiving?" when they're sitting in the airplane. No, I'm intending to skydive. You only know when someone is skydiving once they've actually jumped, jumped out of the plane. 
And that's, that takes boldness. Andrew, Andy Stanley says that it is an individual's willingness to break through the barriers imposed by risk and sacrifice that positions him or her to see what could be reality. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ had a vision of the way things could be for mankind. And he broke through the barriers of risk and sacrifice. He became nothing. He became a servant of us all. He died on the cross. And if he hadn't done that, what we see today couldn't have been a reality. And unless we're prepared to follow in his example, then other people are not going to see it as a reality. And so that's why we're preaching about this importance of having a God-given vision. Because when we have a God-given vision, whether it's for our families or our marriage or our place of work, then we start to bring transformation and we start to bring a different reality to people. So risk is a barrier that can only be broken by courage. And I pray that God would help me to be a courageous person. Help me to be a courageous leader and you too in your spheres of influence. But Andy mentions another barrier there and it's the barrier of sacrifice. A God-inspired vision will always require sacrifice. Let's spend a moment just reflecting on the sacrifices of the ordinary people. In a sense, those that were just leading on the battlefield. Uh, the citizens of Israel. Those who were carrying out the work of building the wall. These men and women were mostly involved in farming. Some of them, a few of them had small businesses. We see um, goldsmiths and others working on the wall. But the bottom line is that whether you were running your own business or on a farm, if you were working on the wall, you weren't working on your business. If you were working on the wall, you weren't staying on your farm, or weeding on the farm, or doing stuff on the farm. So these people were having to, to um, sacrifice um, their very income to work on the wall. But then as time went on, their, their demands for sacrifice started to grow. Opposition began to flourish, and then there was the physical security of the builders was threatened. Not just their financial security, their actual safety itself. And since most of these men had to leave their families on the farm to go and work on the wall, there wasn't anyone at home protecting their farms and children. They didn't know what they were going to find when they went home at evening time. <laughs> and then it got even worse than that because as the threat started to increase, they actually had to spend the night in the town, in, in, in the city, to defend the city. And as Craig highlighted a couple of weeks ago, they didn't even take their armor off from one day to the next. Filthy, smelly, hot, uncomfortable sacrifice. So these ordinary people made huge sacrifices. And it was really hard for the remnant. And then there were the sacrifices that Nehemiah made. Because he didn't expect them to make any greater sacrifices than himself. He left a very cushy and powerful job. He traveled hundreds of kilometers to a rundown, if you like, inner city area where he'd have to build his own house from scratch. He had to contend with death threats and a very real chance of being killed in a battle for what seemed like a lost cause. And yet he was prepared to do it. He didn't expect other people to take greater sacrifices than himself. And as, as I mentioned earlier, the same applies to you and I. If God's given you a vision and it involves others, even if it's your family alone, you can't expect them to make bigger sacrifices or to take bigger risks than yourself. 
And this is something we all need to be careful of. And that's something that I've been guilty of in the past. Is I sometimes commit um, the family to, to, to a particular financial direction that has to do with sacrifice. But I haven't adequately explained it with the family. I haven't um, helped the family to buy into it. And also just put myself in a position where they can say, no, actually we don't want to do that. That's part of seeking God. But if I just go in there and commit them without communicating properly, it's not right. It's dishonoring to God. Because we've already talked about how, as we're pursuing the vision, we mustn't overlook the needs of other people. So sacrifice. Let me give you an example that I came across. This is one of my Swiss relatives. His name is Jörg. He's 74 years old. Uh, he's a professor and also a consultant through most of his life. Lectured in French, Italian, German and English at various different universities. He's a very successful man. Um, he and his wife never had children. So they would go on amazing holidays every year. And um, just to give you an example, it was about four years ago, they went to Brazil and they hired a car and they drove all the way down through Brazil. And then they carried on all the way through to the, to the bottom of Argentina. This took about two months. And then they got on a ship to go to Antarctica. So these are the kind of amazing holidays that these folk uh, were enjoying. And with the prospect of retirement, expecting even better holidays. This is where he lives. It's a little village called uh, Lierdesheri, which is about 10 kilometers out of Bern. Just a typical small Swiss village. Uh, everything is perfect. <laughs> Nothing goes wrong. It's just one of those places. This is a marathon runner. His name is Vilesa. He's from Ethiopia, as you can see. He came second in the Rio Olympic marathon. And as he ran across the finish line, he put up his hands like this as a symbol of defiance against the Ethiopian government. Uh, it, it was to symbolize being handcuffed. And that's because his people group, the Oromo people group, there's about 35 million of them in Ethiopia, about a third of the country, they have been experiencing a lot of um, injustice and oppression by the Ethiopian government. And one of the things that the government has been doing is taking people's land and selling it to foreign investors, and then powerful people in the government have been sticking the money in their back pockets. This here, the guy on the left, uh, this is just to show you that it wasn't all cushy, it was snow. This <laughs> um, Catherine, my my mum's my cousin, my aunt. And then the guy on the left is called Nigos. Nigos is also an aroma who comes from Ethiopia. And his, his family farm, a very um, productive, fertile area, was earmarked by a local powerful government official. He stole it, he sold it, he pocketed the money. And so Nigos started to get involved in the protest movement, which has going, been going for about three or four years now. He was arrested on numerous occasions. On one occasion, he was beaten very severely. Um, and then he had to go into hiding for an entire year uh, because some of his friends had been arrested and disappeared. So while he was in hiding, he started to apply to different countries for political asylum. And eventually, he was allowed to come into Switzerland to start a process to see whether they were prepared to absorb him into Swiss society. They're very strict in Switzerland. So Nigos, along with about 140 other men, ended up in a nuclear bunker in Yerushalayim. 
in Yenisheli, they, they, what, throughout Switzerland during the Cold War, they built these nuclear bunkers so that every citizen in Switzerland could go into a, a, a nuclear bomb-proof bunker in case there was a nuclear war. So these guys, all these men, ended up in that nuclear bunker. None of them could speak the local language. Um, they were disoriented. A very difficult situation for them. But also difficult for this highly sanitized, organized little Swiss village. Um, so Jürg decided that something needed to be done about this. And so he started to, do, to work with these refugees. He started to set up um, an organization in his, in his town, a voluntary organization, asking um, people to help teach them, teachers to go in their spare time to help teach them the language, helping them go through that whole um, interview process of trying to decide whether they're genuine or not. And what they discovered was that instead of it dividing the town and ending up where all of these people were feeling rejected and the town was, was split and there would be a lot of um, hatred going on, instead people in the town started to get to know each other a whole lot better. And these guys, in other places in Switzerland, they've caused a lot of trouble, but in Niederschelli they haven't caused any trouble. But the amazing thing about Jörg is when I was chatting to him, I said, Jörg, have you got any other good holidays on the horizon? And he said, no, we haven't been on holiday for two years. I said, well, what's the story? He said, no, it's, we've just been so taken up with this project um, that we haven't had the time to go on holiday. Now, here's someone who's 74, who, who probably would be quite forgiven to, to say, you know, look, I've come to, I'm coming towards the end of my life, I'm retiring, I'm enjoying the, the product of all my labor. But he wasn't, he wasn't prepared to take less of a sacrifice than the other people that were involved in helping accommodate these um, political refugees. And the other amazing thing was that a time came when, when Nikos was going to have to be uh, transferred to a very remote area, which would have made it that much more difficult for him to go through the, the interview process. So Jürgen never decided to bring him into their house. They never had children, now they've got got Nigus like a son to them. Um, they already knew him really well and knew that he's a great guy, and he is. And so he lives with them, and they are, they are accommodating him and supporting him. And I was just so, so encouraged by that. And I realized that that kind of courageous leadership um, is, is what we all need to show, maybe not at the same level as that. We've all got different skills and abilities and, and, and talents, but that sort of kernel of courage um, and I've been praying for many years for my Swiss family. They, they, a, a lot of them are in a tough place. It's a very um, post, post-modern um, society. Faith is not high in profile. Um, and I, I just wondered how on earth God, uh, God would get through to someone like Jörg. And the amazing thing is that Nebus is a believer. So God's brought him all the way from, from Ethiopia. He's, 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 he's part of the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, and at the end, when I prayed for him, I knew that he had a real faith because, um, because he just turned and he, he gave me a, a huge hug because we were praying about his, his interview process. So I just put that out there. And, and folks, when we follow Christ, we need to follow that way of taking risks and sacrifice because that's what Christ did. He did everything that it took to reconcile us with God. This is what Andy Stanley writes. He says, when a man or a woman 
is willing to give up something for a God-ordained vision, God looks upon it as worship. Why would he say that? Well, to worship is to ascribe worth to something or someone. And so when I sacrifice something for God, I show that he is more valuable to me than anything else. And when I sacrifice him for a particular thing, like in the case of Jörg, his holidays, if I'm doing it as a believer, I'm showing that I value God more than my holidays. I value people more than my holidays. And the reason why I feel so inspired and encouraged by this and challenged is because we have a vision and it's still very much in its formative state. As a church, we're seeking God. And we know that God wants us to become a transformative church. And that's because the gospel is all about transformation and change. We don't want people who come to this church, I don't want myself, to be the kind of person who isn't transformed by the gospel. Because the whole point of the gospel is that it's about transformation. Yeah. It's about changing people from the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. It's about changing rebels and enemies of God into sons and daughters of God. And so that's why we want this to be a church where people are transformed. And as time goes on, he will start to clarify for us what that vision looks like. And we need to commit ourselves to it in every way so that we corporately can live lives that are significant and bring change so that we can use our position to serve other people rather than just to serve ourselves. Yeah. It's so important for us to grasp this. Yeah. And part of the reason why we've been talking about vision is because we felt as we were seeking and praying and asking God, that one of the best ways to start being a transformative church would be to encourage and challenge each one of you to be seeking God for His vision, the way things could be in your marriage, in your family, in your school, in your workplace, just starting to ask God how things could be and then start to be motivated by that passion that they should be like that. Because God wants them to be like that. And that's why we've been equipping you. And God is going to change, not only is He going to change society around you, but He's going to change you as well. It's only in the process of actually walking with God and committing ourselves and making sacrifices that we grow, that we ourselves are transformed. So I pray that God will continue to light firecrackers under our backsides so that we'll become the kind of people that really can come to the end of their lives as David did, where it says that David died, went to be with his forefathers, having served the purposes of God in his generation. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you so much for the example of Nehemiah. We thank you that he is a type of Christ who didn't use his position to serve himself, but to serve others. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father God, thank you for sending him. Lord Jesus, thank you for breaking through those barriers of risk and sacrifice so that you could create a new reality for us here on earth. And as Christ followers, we want to be people like that. We want to be people who, who start to seek you for your God-given vision for us. We know it says in the Bible, that you have a life of good work planned in advance for us to do. Lord, help us to find those things. Help us to walk in them. And help us as a, as a church to find out what you're wanting us to do corporately as a body. Because we know that our 
individual influence will be leveraged up as we do it corporately. And that's what we want to do. So we just pray, work with us, Father God. Come, come fill us up, Holy Spirit. Work in us. Help us to be the people, the kind of people that honor you and worship you, that show you reverence and respect. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.